Would you believe that the news of an American soccer team being almost killed by the opposing players and fans, and then again playing just two days later in the same stadium, wasn't what everyone was talking about? Instead of reporting about the melee, all the major networks were covering a huge announcement. Find out what it was on this episode of Top Fold. Welcome to Top Fold, a podcast about all the news that would have been. I'm your host, Luke Hefley. Here at Top Fold, we explore monumental events that didn't make the top story only because that spot was already taken. Sightseeing over the Himalayas, being the honored guest of an American ambassador, touring multiple historic sites and countries halfway around the world for a group of young soccer players from an American college. This was the trip of a lifetime. Representing the United States in the 6th Annual All-Nepal Football Association, or ANFA Cup, This group was sure to make headlines back home. The ANFA Invitational Soccer Tournament is a men's soccer tournament that showcases rising talent from all over the world. This wasn't the World Cup, which would be the following year, but people knew some players from this tournament could be on that stage soon. Instead of a team with players picked from all over the nation, America was represented by one soccer team from a public university, City University of New York, Brooklyn College. Known as the Kingsmen at the time, this Brooklyn College team was good on and off the field. As the newest upstarts in the NCAA Division I soccer, they were nominated for this tournament by the People-to-People Sports Committee, which President Dwight D. Eisenhower had created back in 1956 to help spread peace and goodwill across the world. As a matter of fact, at one point, many of the players from Brooklyn College were from at least nine different countries. In the semifinal match against the home country of Nepal, the game was extremely physical, much more than usual. The action on the field drew several yellow cards and even a red card against the U.S. player, but observers of the match said that more cards could have been shown to players from both sides. Gino Arrico scored the first goal early in the second half, and then toward the end of the game, the team captain for America, Josh Muscadin, was violently brought down in the box, and a penalty kick was awarded. A stretcher was even brought out from Muscadin, but at the last minute, he arose waved off the medics, and promptly scored the penalty kick for a two-goal lead for the U.S. If the score remained, this would be a huge victory for the U.S. team. After making the goal, Muscadin celebrated, and the home crowd believed that his celebration was vulgar or inappropriate. Almost immediately after the goal, a Nepal player kicked the U.S. team sweeper, Lloyd Matthews. Matthews retaliated, and the crowd went crazy. They immediately began to taunt and curse the U.S. team. A fight broke out between the teams, and a large number of the 15,000 home fans started throwing stones and bottles at the U.S. players. American flags were ripped, and the player safety was legitimately in danger. It was pure bedlam. American players, Brian Anderson and Brentley Babb in particular, found themselves back-to-back fighting off a ring of Nepalese players and the crowd storming the field. Policemen and armed troops descended on the field for the players' protection, so at the 88-minute mark, with just two minutes left in regulation, The referee declared the match abandoned. Luckily, apart from sore ribs, no one was seriously injured or killed. So what would happen next? Would they be safe staying in the country? Could they even play the championship game if they were allowed? Would this become a diplomatic embarrassment, forcing the embassies from Nepal and the U.S. to get involved? No one knew at that moment. Then, to the surprise of the players, there was a twist the next day. The entire Nepal team visited the U.S. players at their hotel. They apologized for both the team's and the fans' violent conduct. The U.S. team warmly received them, but were still feeling upset. The coach, Lenny Reutemann, told the players it was up to them, and he would back whatever decision they made. 
The team knew they had the talent to win the cup, and they wanted the chance to play in the finals to show the world that even a full-out melee with stones thrown at them and escaping the stadium with their lives would not stop this team. With the promise of tight security and that the American players would be safe, ANFA officials declared the USA team the winner. They would now face China, officially the Tibetan national team, in the finals. China had won the previous four ANFA Invitationals, and this team was the number one team in the tournament. The two teams had met earlier in the qualifying round, and it ended in a 0-0 tie, so the Kingsmen knew if they played their best, they could win it all. The 20,000 fans, mostly from Nepal, witnessed an epic championship game. With loud boos coming from the crowd throughout most of the game, multiple times, each team seemed to be on the brink of scoring. At the end of regulation, it was again tied 0-0. The U.S. team dug deep and gave it all they had. Toward the end of the first half of overtime, Greg Bergstrom, a 22-year-old senior, scored the first goal from the edge of the box. Then, after some slick passing from the U.S. team, Bergstrom netted again in the dying minutes of the second part of overtime to seal the fate of the Chinese. It took the U.S. team 120 minutes of grueling soccer to wrestle the ANFA Cup away from the defending champions with a 2-0 victory, the same score as the Nepal game. What was remarkable was at the end of the game, the players from Brooklyn had won over the hearts of the crowd, who were loudly chanting, USA, USA. Now that they had won, would the police and the armed guards be able to keep the crowd back if they decided to rush the field again? The players truly didn't know. Hundreds of troops, wielding long clubs, moved on the field to protect the New Yorkers. Unfazed by the large crowd, the players celebrated with pure joy on the field. Shortly after that, they were awarded the trophy from the very popular Queen of Nepal and her son, the Crown Prince. Back in the United States on this day, the day that a young group of men from Brooklyn College won the championship, survived a very agitated mob, and was able to receive the trophy and take pictures with the Queen of Nepal, hardly anyone in America knew. What could everyone have been talking about? What was the monumental news that had all the major networks covering it? What huge announcement was happening at Lincoln Center in New York City, only 12 miles away from the Brooklyn College campus? Instead of hearing about the Kingsmen surviving a melee and then winning the championship cup halfway around the world, Americans were learning that a well-established business was about to change everything. Chairman and CEO Roberto Goisueta stepped to the podium and announced to the world a new product. Actually, an old product with a new taste. New Coke. That's right. On April 23, 1985, the Coca-Cola company declared it was changing the formula of the Coca-Cola soft drink after 99 years. This rocked not only the cola industry, but the nation. This was a big risk, a risk that the company said they were willing to take. They had done their research, or so they believed. More than 200,000 customers who took the taste test had overwhelmingly chosen the new drink over Pepsi. This result was repeated time and again, not only in taste tests, but also in surveys and focus groups. What were they thinking? Well, for almost a century, Coca-Cola was king. After World War II, Coca-Cola had over 60% of the market. But by 1983, that had declined to less than 24%. Because of the introduction of diet drinks and a changing demographic, Coca-Cola was now losing ground. Pepsi, which many customers preferred because of its sweeter taste, was outselling Coke in many stores. The younger generation was making their choice known, and it wasn't Coke. During the taste test, some people were asked if they would still drink it if it was Coca-Cola. 
Most said they would, but over 10% felt angry at the thought and said they might not. This was a major clue that the company didn't listen to. Management rejected the idea of being two separate varieties. Along with Diet Coke being introduced a few years earlier and Cherry Coke on the way, the belief of multiple Coke products possibly cannibalizing each other was too much for them. Goizueta believed it should be new Coke or no Coke, and that the change must take place openly. He was the one that insisted that the containers had the word new on the label, which gave it the popular name. He described the new flavor as bolder, rounder, and more harmonious, but stayed away from the obvious difference that new Coke was sweeter, making it similar to Pepsi. The press conference didn't go well. One major problem was that the announcement itself, they didn't have enough new Coke. They passed out room-temperature three-ounce cups to the media and attendees. Reviews in the newspaper were fairly positive, but the television news and man-on-the-street stories killed the new soda. When people saw others being so openly critical of new Coke, it just got worse. Coca-Cola stock went up after the announcement, and research showed that an astounding 80% of the American public was aware of the change within days. But the public backlash had already begun especially in the southern states, which was a huge market for Coca-Cola. Many from the south considered Coca-Cola part of their regional identity, their heritage, if you will, and wondered why the company would announce in New York, the home state of Pepsi, instead of Atlanta, Georgia, the headquarters of Coca-Cola. The big change spiraled into a public relations nightmare. Over 40,000 calls and letters expressing anger and disappointment deluged the company. One such angry letter addressed only to Chief Dodo of the Coca-Cola Company, was delivered to Goisueta. Later, he jokingly said he was more upset that it was hand-delivered to him than with the contents of the letter. A psychiatrist hired by Coke to listen to the calls said that some people sounded as if they were discussing the death of a family member. Many people admitted that the first taste was very good, but they didn't truly enjoy an entire serving as much as they thought they would. When people would drink an entire bottle or full glass, they didn't like how much sweeter it was. Late-night comedians Johnny Carson and David Letterman had a field day, and when advertisements came up on baseball stadium scoreboards around the nation, New Coke was soundly booed. Some took it further than that. Gay Mullins, a man from Seattle, formed the old Cola Drinkers of America club to lobby for Coca-Cola to bring back the old formula or sell it to someone else. He was serious and filed a class-action lawsuit against the company. In addition, Pepsi took advantage of Coke's misfortune by quickly running ads mocking Coca-Cola's PR nightmare. Their sales increased by 14%, the largest sales growth in the company's history. After the announcement, Pepsi gave their employees a company-wide paid holiday, proclaiming that Pepsi had won the long-running Cola Wars. They also took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, declaring that Coke has admitted that it's not the real thing. Meanwhile, the Brooklyn College Kingsmen and their harrowing story of almost being killed and then winning it all couldn't break into the news cycle. Mayor Koch took a publicity photo with some of the players once they arrived back in the United States, but there was neither a parade nor featured stories in the national news about their ordeal and victory. Instead, it was new Coke all the time. Soon, Coca-Cola realized that customers were more upset about losing the old formula than the taste of the new one. America wanted the old Coke back. Finally, Coca-Cola decided enough was enough and brought back the original Coke. On July 11, 1985, after just 79 days, Coca-Cola announced the return of the original formula. 
ABC News' Peter Jennings interrupted the soap opera General Hospital with a special bulletin. The front page of the New York Times declared, Old Coat coming back after outcry by Faithful. In just two days following its announcement, the company hotline received almost 32,000 calls praising the change. Labeled Coca-Cola Classic, it would now be sold side-by-side with New Coat. Gay Mullins, the founder of the Old Cola Drinkers of America, who had earlier sued Coke, was given the first case of Coca-Cola Classic. Many marketing experts praised Coca-Cola for their speedy about-face. Lots of customers were still very skeptical and believed it was just New Coke under the original name. Some analysts suggested that a reintroduction of the original formula was the plan all along. Knowing they needed to promote Coke to a younger audience, the following year in 1986, Coke used Max Hedrum, a fictional AI character portrayed by actor Matt Frewer, whose biting commentary and wit were extremely popular in both Britain and America. Using the phrase, the refreshing new taste of Coke, along with the addition of Michael Jordan to promote Coke products, both Coke and Coke classic sales rose. Ironically, two years after the Brooklyn College melee, the 1987 Nepal tournament officially was titled the ANFA Coca-Cola Invitational. But over the next few years, Coke, or New Coke, lost more market share to Coca-Cola Classic, and in 1992, New Coke was quietly rebranded as Coke II, like the Roman numeral II. No one wanted it, and it was rarely found on supermarket shelves or in restaurants. CEO Goisweta said he never regretted the decision to change Coke, even throwing a 10th anniversary party for New Coke in 1995. He continued to drink New Coke for the rest of his life. In July of 2002, Coca-Cola announced that Coke 2 would be discontinued entirely. That same year, they also announced that the word classic would no longer be prominent on the label of Coca-Cola Classic. In 2009, the company permanently removed classic from its packaging. In 2019, Coca-Cola announced that in promotion of the third season of the popular Netflix show Stranger Things, They were bringing back New Coke with the original labels and all for a limited time. The show, which is set in 1985, included cans of New Coke in three of the season's episodes. Coca-Cola produced about a half a million cans to be sold mostly online. Due to such a high demand, the website crashed and there were major shipping delays. Ironically, this introduction also didn't go well, but for the opposite reason. This time it was too popular. They just can't get it right. The men from Brooklyn College who represented America in soccer went on to lead successful lives. Many of them played soccer at the next level and became successful coaches all over the nation. They became business owners, educators, and leaders in their communities with several former players coaching or running youth soccer teams and leagues. Greg Bergstrom is a logistics manager for ABC Carpet and Home NYC with multiple locations in New York City and across the state and played in the Cosmopolitan Soccer League the over-40 division, for many years. He's also very active in the youth soccer sporting club called YOA, a club started by Norwegian immigrants in 1911 and is the oldest club in New York and maybe the nation. This is a non-profit club that emphasizes player development on and off the field. Josh Muscadin, a retired real estate company owner, is the president of the FSC Riptide Soccer Club in Maine. Its goal is to not only compete on the national level, but to also encourage the spirit of fair play and sportsmanship among his players. Brinthley Uriah Babb was a long-term NYS Economic Development Zones coordinator and community organizer in Brooklyn and later became a secondary educator in Florida. In 2018, 
He was one of the keynote speakers for the Pele Football Club's educational development program in Guyana, South America. This was also his boyhood club. The program aims to empower young soccer players to overcome poverty by building confidence, self-esteem, and ambition through the power of sports and education. He gave a presentation on conflict resolution to scores of student-athletes and parents. Coach Lenny Reutemann was a highly successful coach for many years, bringing Brooklyn College into Division I and defeating much larger universities up and down the East Coast. He finished with 138 victories, the most in school history. Reutemann was even the assistant coach of the 1988 United States men's national team and has coached games in at least a dozen countries. Highly sought after, he has taught multiple clinics all over the country for young people who want to learn the game of soccer. He lives in southern Florida, not far from Bab, and they frequently talk, mostly about family and soccer. In doing research for this podcast, I was able to talk to Coach Reutemann, Uriah Babb, and a number of players from the 1985 U.S. team. It doesn't take long to hear the passion in their voices when they talk about the melee they experienced in Nepal and their lives in the sport of soccer. There's so much more to this story. I'm hopeful of creating another podcast soon that is much more in-depth with first-hand accounts from the entire team. Mr. Babb is coordinating a players' reunion to reminisce about old times, and I am sure this life-changing tournament in Nepal will be a main part of the conversation. I am hopeful to meet them and hear more about this all-too-important but overlooked event. On April 23, 1985, instead of America discussing a soccer team from Brooklyn having rocks hurled at them, our national flag being ripped to threads, having to fight their way out of a crowded stadium, and then winning the championship against the heavily favored China, the headlines around the country spotlighted a soft drink company declaring out with the old and in with the new. Coke, that is. And there you have it, all the news that would have been. I want to thank Uriah Babb for helping with so many of the details for this podcast. It just couldn't have been done without him. Thank you for joining us this week on Top Fold. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Top Fold Podcast. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcast. All my sources and research can be found at topfold.buzzsprout.com. There, along with other things that bring history to life. I'd like to thank David Wagler for the music. And if you like the show, please rate us and give us a review. Or simply tell a friend. That would be great. So until next time, there you have it. All the news that would have been.